Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's time to add another few countries to the list of where I am not welcome. This is The Line, a 170-kilometre long, 500-metre-high city in the desert proposed by the Saudi Arabian government as part of their NEON project, which supposedly will also include a port city and a futuristic mountain resort in addition to a selection of smaller projects in the same area. The NEON proposal is just the latest in a long line of very ambitious and expensive projects undertaken by this oil-rich region, some of which have gone on to be global icons of excess, others which are eternally stuck in the middle of development, and most that will never get off the drawing board. There is a long list of far more qualified and far more humorous people that have commented on the problems of these projects and the cities that have been formed around them from a town planning and architectural point of view, but the countries have carried on with their ambitions regardless. So, what is going on here? Why do these countries need to build such expensive and inefficient projects? Well, you might have guessed that it's all economics. The typical explanation is that these projects will attract tourists which will subsidise these countries' economies when their oil runs out or is no longer demanded at the same level it is today. The UAE, Qatar and Saudi Arabia have all doubled down on this idea, spending billions on impressive projects and subsidising global airlines to bring tourists into their cities, even if it's just for a short stopover. But will this work? The inconvenient truth is probably not. If anything, all of this lavish spending is just going to burn through their oil wealth even faster, bringing them closer to the day where they won't have the income to support the lifestyle that their citizens have become accustomed to. This obviously raises questions about alternative motives, which centre around unelected leaders building castles in the sand to stoke their own egos, even if it comes at the expense of their nation's long-term prosperity. Hopefully, of course, that doesn't happen, but regardless, these projects are still a fantastic economics case study to explore because to properly assess if they are a good idea or not, we need to understand everything from the curse of oil wealth to taxation to currency exchange dynamics all the way to the effectiveness of national project spending. Understanding these economic decisions will not only help to explain the economies of Gulf countries and their impressive projects, they will also help us to understand the economies of a lot of countries that are making headlines for similar issues. So, how bad will it be for these countries once their oil runs out or is no longer demanded? Do these economic development plans stand any chance of replacing this lost revenue? And if not, what is the real reason behind these projects? And would there be some better alternatives? Once we have done all of that, we can put the economies of the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Qatar on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. In 1959, the Netherlands discovered 2.7 trillion cubic metres of extractable natural gas in a field taking up most of the north of the small country. This immediately made the nation a lot of money as fossil fuel companies moved in to start extracting profits from the fields. The natural gas industry boomed and the value of the Dutch guilder rose substantially in international exchange markets as other countries exchanged their money for guilders which they could then use to buy this natural gas. This caused a problem for the Netherlands' other industries because now any goods that they wanted to export would be more expensive for the countries they were selling it to because those goods would need to be paid for in the more valuable Dutch currency. Domestic industries also struggled to sell their goods locally because the Dutch people could use their more valuable currency to import goods from countries with a less valuable currency. 
This meant that the gas industry really became the only viable industry in the country, which was inherently unstable for a lot of reasons. Not least of which is the fact that you don't really need that many people to extract natural gas, so mass unemployment becomes a very real issue. This is what is called Dutch disease, and I'm sure most of you have probably heard about it before. We have mentioned it several times before on this channel when looking at resource-rich countries that have squandered their wealth. Currency value goes up, industry competitiveness goes down, and the country becomes dependent on exporting raw materials which has historically been an industry prone to corruption and mismanagement. That's where most economists, including ourselves in the past, have left it. But there's a little bit more to understand about Dutch disease which can directly help us to explain these fancy projects in the desert. The explanation of currency appreciation is very neat, and in the short to medium term as accurate as most people need it to be. But if you think about this for too long, you might start to see some problems. The value of a currency is kind of like the value of a stock. Completely meaningless unless you consider the context of those values. Microsoft shares traded around $240 and Google shares trade for $100 at the time of making this video, but that does not mean that Microsoft is 2.4 times more valuable or profitable or anything relative to Google. One US dollar buys 144 Japanese yen, but just because the Japanese currency is worth less does not mean that the country has more competitive exports. Likewise, up until recently the British pound was worth more than the American dollar, but English workers weren't inherently more expensive to employ. Eventually these things will equalise. Dutch citizens enjoyed the value of their oil-backed guilders for a short while, but the slowdown of industry meant that unemployment rose and their salaries fell until they were back in line with international competitiveness. The actual cause of Dutch disease is a little bit more interesting. This will get very deep into some pretty high level economic theories, but stick with me here and you'll probably walk away understanding more about global industry and trade than a lot of the top people making these decisions for big companies and entire countries. Dutch disease is just a catchy title that the publication, The Economist, gave to Ryb Kaczynski's theorem on the endowment effects of the factors of production on goods outputs. You can see why they needed a catchy title. This theorem looks at the factors of production, land, labour and capital, and assesses how a change in these factors will result in a change in the outputs produced by an economy. Every economy is bound by what is known as the production possibility frontier. This is a limit beyond which an economy can simply not produce any more stuff because it has fully utilised all of the resources available to it in the most efficient way possible. Good economists therefore need to make decisions about what to produce and what not to produce because making something like a car is going to use up land, labour and capital which can't then be used to make other products like let's say computers. This is the foundation of opportunity costs. Everything an economy makes comes at the expense of making something else. Land and labour are pretty self-explanatory and capital is simply anything that can be used to produce something of value. A factory full of industrial equipment is capital, the computer I'm writing this video on right now is capital portfolio of financial assets is capital because it will produce value by paying dividends. Even cash is capital because it can be used to buy stuff that makes things. Now the trick here is that an economy is not normally going to run into production limits based on all of the factors of production at the same time. For something like farming food, an economy will run out of good land before it runs out of capital or manpower. And for something like financial services, an economy will run out of skilled labour and capital before it runs out of land. All of the biggest banks in the world combined could fit their facilities many times over on the average Australian cattle farm. The production of some goods are bound by not enough capital, some are bound by not enough labour and others are bound by not enough land. Take an economy that is choosing either to produce consumer goods or oil. If they direct their resources to producing more consumer goods they will have less resources left to produce oil and vice versa. Opportunity costs. 
consumer goods are bound by labour and capital. You need manpower and factories to make these items efficiently. Oil production is mainly bound by land. If you don't have oil in your soil, you can deploy all of the infrastructure and manpower you want, you're not producing oil. Normally these three factors of production would be shown to create a single production possibility frontier. But remember, an economy is not likely to run into these limits at the same time, so we are going to assume that labour and capital are perfectly interchangeable for both of these products and draw a land limit separately. If we follow the inside line these specific limitations create, we get the production possibility frontier again. Anything under this line is some combination of consumer goods and oil that the economy can produce, and anything above the line is a combination that is beyond the capacity of this economy because it doesn't have enough capital and labour, or enough land. The economy finds an optimal middle ground where these two limitations intersect and they make some cars and they pump some oil from the few fields fully utilising land, labour and capital. But say this economy suddenly discovered another huge reserve of fossil fuels. What that would look like on this chart is the land constraint shifting outwards because while the country hasn't added more hectares to its land mass, the land that it does have has become more productive because it's full of oil. We can now draw a new production possibility frontier and you will notice that the intersection point has shifted. If we look at the makeup of consumer products versus oil in the economy then obviously the amount of oil production has increased because there is more oil to extract. But despite the economy actually growing wealthier overall, the production of consumer goods has fallen. But why did this happen? This might come as a shock to some economists, but just because something works on a market or PPF chart doesn't mean that it works in the real world, and it's still very important to explain how this actually plays out. In this example, the oil industry draws in capital and labour that would have gone to producing consumer goods because an investor is going to make much more money from a $100 million oil rig than they will from a $100 million toys factory, which is the capital, and workers are going to make much more money working on a rig than they will working on a production line, which is the labour. Reib-Kaczynski's theorem therefore shows that natural resource wealth impacts the supply of other goods and services in the long term as well as the market demand for those goods and services in the short term due to currency fluctuations. Okay, now you have a pretty advanced understanding of what goes on when an economy shifts its industrial focus, so let's use this newfound knowledge to understand the decision making of the Gulf states. Dutch disease is bad no matter what the root cause. Overdependence on a single industry, even one that isn't inherently unsustainable, causes lots of economic instability. Single industry economies become dependent on commodity prices and their prosperity ends up being determined by how much they can sell a barrel of oil for. So diversification is the name of the game, and there are two ways to achieve this. Increase capital or increase labour productivity. If we look at oil rich countries that have gone on to become economic failures like Venezuela, we often find that governments were tempted to use the oil revenues to immediately increase living standards for the people through generous indiscriminate welfare plans. That might be very tempting, especially if the country is very poor, but it doesn't solve any of the underlying economic issues that come from natural resource wealth. Now of course, you know, I gotta talk about Norway. Of all of the countries in the world, Norway is the single best example of using natural resource wealth well. Before discovering oil, their economy was quite small and mostly focused on fishing and light manufacturing, but then they discovered oil. Their capital and labour restraints were pretty tight, their population was decently educated but still very small, and they didn't have infrastructure needed to compete with larger European powers in most fields of manufacturing or services. The oil discovery expanded their land restraints which muscled out their traditional industries, so the challenge became growing the capital and labour constraints to compensate. The easiest way to do this was to take the money they received from their state-owned oil company and the oil rights they sold and put it into a sovereign wealth fund. Today Norway has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world with over $1.2 trillion in assets under management. 
which works out to about $250,000 per Norwegian citizen. Invested capital is still capital. It's not normally the kind of capital that most economists think of, which is typically big machines in factories and container ports and that kind of stuff. But it's still capital and it increases Norway's output by producing investment returns. What's really genius is that this money then gets used to fund a host of social services, chief amongst which is education. Better educated people contribute more to labour productivity, so just like that, Norway improved their capital and labour limitations. Today, Norway still enjoys a lot of income from oil, but they also produce income from their sovereign wealth fund in addition to a number of high-tech industries, like being the administrative centre of one of the biggest merchant marine fleets in the world. But what worked in Norway would not work in the UAE. The Gulf states do all have their own sovereign wealth funds, but they are not run the same way as Norway's. They don't really fund social services and they're not very transparent with what they invest in or how they operate. Now, I'm not going to pretend that we don't know the reason why these differences exist. Norway and the Gulf states are all technically monarchies, but Norway's king is almost entirely ceremonial and they have a stable democratic government that is beholden to the will of the people. The leaders of the Gulf states don't have these limitations, so they can take more liberties with where they put the money from their sovereign wealth funds. We don't know the figures because these funds are not very transparent, so they could very well be making fantastic returns, but the public investments do tend to be more flashy. The NEON project with its 170 kilometre long city is going to be funded through a development company wholly owned by Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, and it does have enough money to make this dream a reality if it went all in on the project. But again, someone has to ask, why? The renderings look very pretty, but most estimates say that this project will cost almost a trillion dollars and provide no meaningful quality of life improvements over a traditional city that could be developed at a tenth of the cost. The simple explanation is, smooth brain dictator wants a big shiny toy. That, to be honest, is probably accurate, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt here for a second. Could this make economic sense? I'm Jane Perlez long-time foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. To give this a fair assessment, let's go back to the production possibility frontier. The Gulf states have very small native populations, and before selling oil, they had very limited capital too. Simultaneously, their land was mostly inhospitable desert, so their production possibility frontiers were very limited. When they discovered oil on their land, the value of that land grew tremendously because it was full of a highly in-demand source of energy. But the problems of a small, unskilled workforce and limited capital resources remained. Most economies struggle with finding enough jobs for workers. The Gulf states struggle to find enough workers to fill out all of the jobs that their economies can create. The countries were able to get around these limitations by inviting foreign oil companies to provide their own capital and labour. But those companies were only interested in doing this to produce oil. So while their economy did grow, it grew to be entirely dependent on this one resource. 
Fortunately, the Gulf states received oil revenue, which is, as we've learnt, just another form of capital. Unfortunately, no matter how much the government invested into their nation's traditional industries, they were never going to be able to compete with oil production. Dubai, before oil, was a port for non-industrial fishing, and Saudi Arabia was largely made up of nomadic tribes with a tourist industry that relied almost exclusively on Muslim pilgrimages to Mecca. The countries didn't have regular industries that they could grow out to compete with oil, so they had to build them from scratch. Now, since oil is so profitable, there are not many modern industries that can realistically compete with it. Norway's biggest industries outside of oil are now shipping, tourism and administrative services. Finance is going to be a tough sell for the Gulf states, which are still majority Muslim, which means that their banks have limitations around charging or giving interest, which is seen as usury according to the teachings of Islam. They still have large local banks, but with Islamic financing limitations, they are going to find it very difficult to compete internationally with more traditional banks. They have invested heavily into shipping. Just instead of shipping cargo containers over the oceans, they are shipping humans through the sky. Emirates, Qatar Airways and Etihad are some of the largest airlines in the world, which is a great play for these economies for a lot of reasons. Beyond the prestige these airlines bring their home countries, they are an industry which doesn't require much labour or care about the quality of land. These airlines employ a majority of their workforce from outside their home country, which means that they are not tapping into a limited pool of workers from within the country itself. These airlines also assist with padding out the tourism industry. No matter how much the Gulf states invest into their cities, they are not going to be a tourist destination that competes with Western Europe, North America or Asia Pacific. The environment is too hot and outside of some very significant cultural centres there is not much for tourists to experience besides expensive hotels and shopping centres. It appeals to some people but most tourists are looking for something a little bit more fulfilling on their travels. But that's fine. The tourism boards of these countries know this. Their cities are glamorous enough to entertain people for a few days at most. But that works well with their airlines that deposit tourists for stopovers on their way to their destination. Although the tourism board also knows that even millions of visitors on 24-hour layovers every year is not going to replace the oil industry. But that's okay, because tourists are not the primary target of these projects. Businesses are. The UAE in particular has extended some pretty generous incentives to businesses to establish themselves in the country. Businesses bring workers, and workers spend money in the local economy on everything from housing to snack food. But tax incentives alone are not enough to attract the types of businesses that the Gulf states want to a region of the world that most people equate with instability and war, even if that's not a totally fair assessment. Businesses need to see that they can make money first before low tax rates mean anything, and that's where these mega-projects come in. Building something like the Palm Jumeirah took the cooperation of hundreds of companies and millions of workers. Even once they are finished, there are international hotel chains, property development companies, law firms, landscapers and everything in between required to keep these developments looking world class. This creates an industry which, just like oil, is worth it for businesses to import their capital and labour into the country to take advantage of. Once big businesses get established, smaller service businesses can form around them and very quickly the country can develop a vibrant business ecosystem where once there was only sand. Big projects and the promise of even bigger projects in the future is a very effective way to entice companies into setting up offices which will hopefully continue to operate long after the oil is gone. We only need to look to places like Singapore and formerly Hong Kong to see that just being a good place to do business can be very lucrative. Once that critical mass of business activity is established, the Emirates have a lot going for them. Those international airlines and world-class airports means that business travellers from Europe, America and Asia can all convene easily in a central and exciting location. Low tax rates are always going to be popular, 
And then there is the issue of cheap labour. The population of the UAE is just under 9.5 million, which is an increase of about 9.5 million from when the country first discovered oil in the early 1950s. Before that, the population of the Emirates was less than 200,000. Today, most people living and working in the country are expats. A lot of those expats are the skilled workers that have come over to manage the companies taking advantage of the gold rush of oil and development. But a majority are unskilled workers making very little money working in appalling conditions under circumstances that mean that they are effectively trapped there indefinitely. As much as possible, I try to stick to the cold-hearted macroeconomics. So yeah, maybe this source of cheap labour is a great way to get these projects done without spending a lot on workers that are treated humanely. If the Gulf states are able to successfully transform themselves into the Singapore of the Middle East, I am sure a lot of these workers will be quietly shipped back home and the golden visage of glitz and glamour will remain intact. I only hope that enough people are made aware of this and care about it enough that it becomes a net negative for companies to set up operations in these countries because of the bad press it would bring them, which will hopefully force the countries to outlaw this practice entirely. Unfortunately for now, most people seem unaware or don't really care about it enough for it to be a big enough problem to affect meaningful change. Okay, now it's time to put the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Qatar on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. Starting as always with size, the UAE has a GDP of $358 billion, giving it a 6 out of 10. Saudi Arabia has a GDP of $700 billion, giving it an 8 out of 10. And Qatar has a GDP of $146 billion, giving it a 5 out of 10. GDP per capita is decent in all of these countries, thanks to the oil wealth and building booms that they have been home to in recent decades. Decent, but not excellent, because a lot of that wealth has been statistically spread thin amongst large imported populations. The UAE has a GDP per capita of $36,000, which gives it a 7 out of 10. Saudi Arabia has a GDP per capita of $23,000, which gives it a 6 out of 10. And Qatar has a GDP per capita of $61,000, so it gets an 8 out of 10. Stability and confidence is an interesting one with these countries. The success of their plan to attract businesses is going to ride primarily on people believing they are a safe, stable place to live and work. But still being largely tied to the price of oil and being ruled by unelected monarchs means that the UAE and Qatar get a 5 out of 10, and additionally due to a host of international controversies, Saudi Arabia gets a 4 out of 10. Growth has not been as spectacular as you might expect. These countries have had mostly stagnant GDP growth over the past decade, despite huge stimulus measures and oil reserves. Qatar and Saudi Arabia get a 3 out of 10, but the story is slightly more positive for the UAE, which gets a 5 out of 10. Finally, industry. Obviously, the oil industry in all of these countries is huge. Tourism is a great little bonus, and regular service businesses are making themselves at home, but all of that still ultimately depends on the oil industry for now. If these industries can become self-sufficient, then these scores will improve drastically, but for now, all of these countries get a 6 out of 10. Altogether, that gives the UAE an average score of 5.8, Qatar gets an average score of 5.4, and Saudi Arabia also gets an average score of 5.4 out of 10. Now, if anyone can recommend me an airline that flies to Europe without a stopover in the Gulf, I would be greatly appreciative. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye.